but alas, it is the time. So if you have your Bibles and want to open to the book of Micah, we're going to be there as we will be for the next several weeks looking at his prophecy. And while you're turning there, I want to just give us a little context. You see, back uh, hundreds of years, a couple hundred years before Micah preached his sermons and preached and wrote down his book and conveyed this message to the people of Israel, God brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, brought them across the Red Sea into the wilderness, and they encamped around this mountain called Sinai, and and God... um, showed himself up and showed as a cloud in the, at the top of Sinai, and he invited Moses to come up there. And, and he told Moses this. He, he gave Moses commandments as he initiated a covenant with the people of Israel. And here's what the beginning of, the, of the, his commandments say in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 4, that we'll get to Micah in just a moment. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I... And the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven or in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that it is in the water under the earth. And with that beginning, God laid out ten commandments for the people of Israel. Four of them were vertically aligned. They they dealt with our relationship with God and how we should reverence and revere him, how we should obey him, how we should walk with him. And then he gave six commands that, that talk about how we should relate to one another as God's image bearers. I heard years ago one preacher say that these aren't super high, these aren't a very high bar. And really, in many ways, they're pretty low. There's only one God. Worship me. Don't make any carved images. Rest. You know, don't take other people's stuff. Don't take other people's spouses. Tell the truth. Honor your parents. Pretty simple things that God laid out for his people. And yet, let me fast forward a couple of hundred years. The people had seasons of rebellion and they had seasons of walking with God and they kind of were there and then they were not. And, and so God kind of left them up to their own devices a bit. They, he allowed them to have kings. And one of those kings uh, named Solomon had a son who got into deeper rebellion with God, and so the nation was split from beneath him. And so we have two. Now the one nation is now two. The nation is divided. Samaria in the north had wandered from God in that split. Judah in the south, they remained faithful a little bit longer, and yet they still allowed corruption to set in. And so Micah is a prophet from the south. And he preached during uh, the reigns of three southern kings from about 750 to 700 BC. And he preached to the people of, as we mentioned last week, to the people of Judah and to the people of Jerusalem. And as we talked about last week also, one of the big themes of Micah is justice, or rather injustice. And there are places where this injustice is exercised or exhibited toward others. But here, in this first passage that we're considering today, Micah seems to begin where the Ten Commandments begin, regarding our injustice against God. And so if we were to summarize or this, the message of Micah chapter 1 into one run-on sentence, if you will, 
It might sound like this, and this is where your notes pick up in, in your handout. And I think Micah 1 has this theme that idolatry is spiritual adultery. Breaking our covenant with God, resulting in judgment, which is God's just and specific response. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Breaking our covenant with God, resulting in judgment, which is God's just and specific response. Now, I know some of this language sounds harsh. Idolatry, adultery. But when you really get down to it, idolatry is spiritual adultery. And Micah's mission is to expose the sin and warn the people of Israel that God's time of patience had run out and that judgment was coming. And so Micah begins with a summons, a call to hear in, in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. If you have your Bibles open and want to look at it or look on the screen, Micah says this, he says, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming down out of his place and will come, tre- come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire like waters before a steep place. And here in this opening summons, Micah is calling all people to pay attention. He's calling all people to hear, all people to listen. And yet, as we'll see in a few moments, Micah focuses his prophecies on the people of Israel and Judah. So this is a general call, but his prophecy is very specific. And I think it's important for us to recognize and remember that the prophets in the Old Testament often were called specifically to preach to the people of God. And they often preached messages of judgment, messages, messages of discipline, messages calling people to repentance. And, and, and so he wanted, he, it was a very specific message for the people of God. And I think it's important for us to remember, you know, as Christians, we often think about future judgment. We think about that day when God is going to come and judge the earth, and we think, yay, we're free from that because of what Jesus Christ has done. But I think it's important, yes, there will be a judgment. And there will be a judgment for all humanity. But as Christians, we need to pay attention, just as the people of Israel did, to his indictments against us and respond accordingly. And notice that this judgment is very visual. In fact, in Micah chapter 1, verse 1, Micah talks about this being a message that he saw. And he talked, you know, if you, if in those first verses that we just read and that Melody read for us, the imagery is powerful. In, in fact, in the earthquake in, in Turkey, in Syria, that happened a couple weeks ago, I heard someone talk about a valley There was a rift that opened up in a valley that was some 900 feet long. People who used to walk across this valley can't walk across there because of how vast this chasm is now. And we kind of get this idea that God, when he steps down in judgment, will will judge and will split open the earth the way that that valley was opened. Micah saw what would happen. He saw a vision from God, and this certainly is a devastating vision. He will, mount, he will flatten mountains and rip open valleys, 
But it begs the question, why? Why, God, would you do that? Why is your judgment so fierce? And for the people of Judah, the initial indictment of injustice against God is idolatry. He is laying the indictment of idolatry on the people of Israel and Judah. Look at verses 5 to 7 in in chapter 1. He says, All this is for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. And what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not... Excuse me, is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down on her stones. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols will be laid waste. For For the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and for a fee of a prostitute, they shall return. Now, other than one brief mention of idols, it may be difficult for us in our context to see how this passage really relates to idolatry. But let me explain a couple of things. First of all, the the sin of Jacob or, or Samaria. You see, right after the reign of Solomon, The nation, as I said, essentially split into two. The northern kingdom became known as Israel, which is the name that God gave to Jacob. Later, they became known as Samaria. And that early king, one of those first kings, in order to establish that northern kingdom by itself, set up a new religious system. He brought in things from Judaism, and then he brought in things from other pagan cults. He set up idols and, and what they called high places in a bunch of areas. And the reason he did that is so that the people of the northern kingdom wouldn't have to go to the south to worship, because in the south, in Jerusalem, that's where the temple was. So they began to set up this idolatrous worship in the north. But in addition to this, it appears that the people in the south, the people of Judah, had set up high places. Now, I've often been puzzled about, I knew that high places were like places of of worship of other gods, but I didn't fully understand it. And one of the commentators I read this week, a guy named David Pryor, notes it this way. He says, the appalling state of idolatry at the heart of the nation and its capital, Jerusalem, takes on a particular significance when we appreciate what normally took place in these pagan high places. A high place had an Asherah, a pole. It was a, a, a well, a pole symbolizing the fertility goddess and a Masiba one or more pillars, stone pillars, symbolizing the male fertility god. A stone altar was either set up, was either separate from the holy place or was part of it. And, and the high place also contained a, content, a tent or a room where cultic vessels were stored and where sacrificial meals were eaten. And if you remember in that passage, Micah also talked about prostitution and one of the ways that the people worship these fertility deities is by engaging in prostitution. And so here the people of God had taken, now I want you to get this because this is happening in Jerusalem. God had said, I, will, I want you to build a temple there in Jerusalem and that's where my name will be and that's where my glory will be known. This is where you are to come to worship. And it's almost as though in that, on that very hill next to it, and we don't know exactly where it is, but they had set up other high places. So the very place that should have been known for God was now God was having to share his glory with other deities. 
with practices that were detestable to him. Now, I think, I know, we can look back on this time and think, wow, that's so silly or strange, and yet we, we have our own ways of committing idolatry. We may not bow down to carved images, but we have our various idols of our own. And I think on a grand scale, we could look at, at idolatry that is present in a variety of worldview ideas. In fact, Tim Keller talks about the various isms that commit their own idolatry. He says, fascism makes an idol of one's race or nationality. Socialism makes an idol of the state. Capitalism makes an idol of the free market. Humanism makes an idol of reason and science. Individualism makes an idol out of the individual freedom. Traditionalism makes an idol, makes the family and tradition an idol. And we might even add into that nationalism or Christian nationalism. The idolatry of thinking that the United States is intended to be a Christian nation forcing other people to adhere to Christian values. God's kingdom is not expanded by force or coercion. God's kingdom is transformed, is expanded by the transformation of people's lives. But let's get a bit more personal. It's easy to talk about those things out there because they might not touch us too much. But what about when it comes home? You see, I think there are things in your life and in mine that are fighting for supremacy, that are fighting for priority over God. Money, ease, success, a certain relationship or person, students' grades. Friends, possessions, politics. You see, I think there are good gifts of God that can be our own idols if they're out of place in our relationship with Him. Stephen Um, in his book, describes idolatry this way. He says, idolatry is choosing one's own will above God's will. Choosing one's own will above God's will. Where am I, where are we thinking about our own will regarding these potential idols? And and let me encourage you, I'm going to ask these questions of me, but I want to encourage you to ask similar questions of the idols that you might have. Maybe, Maybe the idols I put on my list are yours, and maybe they're not. But let's think through this for a moment. The the idol of money, am I managing money in a way that pleases God? Am I tithing? Am I saving? Am I providing for my family? Am I sharing generously to those in need? Or am I spending it frivolously, working on acquiring things for myself? Ease. I know we need rest and we need some rest each day. We need rest each week. In fact, God even said, take a break, Sabbath. Have a a whole day to rest. Don't work. And I think vacations are helpful and can lead to flourishing and refreshing, but am I, are we so focused on the pleasure of a certain kind of vacation, or am I wasting too much time watching TV or playing games or reading books, even good books? Or the idol of success, am I sacrificing my family to the idol of success by not creating margin or not being intentional with my time with them? Or possessions, am I thinking so much about certain possessions, a car, a gadget, a book, an article of clothing, 
that I'm getting distracted from the mission that God has for me? Or politics? Am I thinking about listening to, reading things so much that my mind thinks that the solutions to the problems in our world are in the hands of politicians or in the hands of political parties rather than in the God of the universe who has revealed himself through his creation, through his word, and works wonderfully through his people. You see, I think the challenge with idolatry, remember we talked about it being spiritual adultery. The challenge with idolatry is, as Tim Keller says, is the, the greatest danger in this is not that we become atheists where we think that our idol is our true God, but that we ask God to coexist with the idols. Scripture reveals that God is a jealous God and he will have no other gods before him. What are the gods? What are the idols that are fighting for our attention? But in response to this initial indictment, Micah states in verses 8 to 9, he says, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. You know, I think he is lamenting and wailing because he sees what's going to happen to his home. Micah caught a vision of what was going to happen to his people. He has seen the doom and it breaks his heart. And my hope is that when God calls out an idol in my life, when he calls out idols in our lives, that we would respond in much the same way, that we would repent, lament, and wail, purging from our affections, purging those false deities from our affections. And so after calling the people to hear and revealing this initial indictment against them, Micah discusses a bit of the sentence, which we see later on as a coming invasion. And this invasion is really the punishment for their idolatry, it's the punishment for their sin. And it hits home to them in some very personal and specific ways. And I think Micah is so creative in the way that he infuses the meaning or sounds of the names of these cities with the outcomes that are coming on them. And, and we lose this because the Hebrew is different than English. They, they don't translate all the same ways, but there's a Scottish preacher who, who wrote about it this way. He described it for his people in Scotland like this, and this is what it would have sounded like similar to the Hebrews. This guy, uh, Craigie in Scottish, he writes, Creef will know grief. Fofar will, be, will forfeit. Crail will be frail. Wick will be burned. Stornaway will be blown away. Edinburgh will be no Eden. For Tain, there will be only pain. So just as we might imagine if we lived in those cities, this would not be a good thing. So too, Micah, as he's proclaiming this message to the cities of Judah, they're hearing it very personally and very it's, it's hitting close to home. In fact, he begins in verse 10. He says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In fact, here he, he actually quotes something from 2 Samuel when David sings a song of lament in response to the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan. 
And Micah seems to be drawing his hearers back to that. He's saying, remember how David responded to that death. That is the thing that's going to happen here. This will be like a death to us. This coming invasion, this coming invasion will be like that. But then he continues in verse 10. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Well, Bethlehem means house of dust. And so here he begins with several of the towns that surround his city. And he alludes to the ways that this coming invasion will be very personal for them, how it will tear them apart. In verse 11, he says, Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafer. In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. So here, these three towns, Schaefer means beauty town, and their beauty will be shame. The very thing they prize themselves in will be shameful to them. That next town, Zanan, is a nearby town, and that town means going forth. And, and, and the relief that the people of Schaefer might have thought would happen from, Zan, from Zanan will not happen. The go forth town will not go forth because they can't. They will be destroyed as well. Beth Ezel means the house of taking away. They, Beth Ezel will be unable to take away the shame of Shaphir. And then he continues, For the inhabitants of Meroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Meroth means bitter spring. And, so, and truly, as they wait for good, it will not come. This bitter spring will know only bitterness because of this coming judgment. In verse 13, he says, Harness the steeds to the chariots, the inhabitants, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Lachish, in Hebrew, sounds like steeds. And so here, this town, which was kind of a military town, it was known for their military might. They, they trusted in their weapons of war. They trusted in their technology rather than in their God. And it ended up acting like sin. And I do wonder how often we have replaced our relationship with God with technological advances or conveniences. In verse 14, Micah says, Therefore you shall give gifts to Morsheth Gath. Houses of Axib shall be, shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. Morsheth Gath is, is Micah's hometown. That's where he lived. And it means something like one who is betrothed, or in other words, one who should be receiving gifts. Remember, when we go to a wedding, we give gifts to the bride and the bridegroom. And yet here, this betrothed one is the one who is giving away everything because of this invasion. And Axib, as you might guess, means deception town. I don't know that I'd want to live there. And then he concludes in verse 15. He says, I will bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mauritius. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Mauritius means something like possession. They will be conquered. They will, of course, dispossess all that is theirs because of this judgment. And then just as Micah opened with a reference to in David's life, so too he closes with a reference to the cave of Adullam, which is where David ran when he was running from King Saul. 
When Saul was trying to kill him, David found refuge in the cave of Adullam. And I think it's important for us to be aware of how our idolatry may be disciplined and may bring judgment from the Lord. As we see in these prophecies against these town, the, the towns, that the discipline can be very personal and very specific. And yet we also need to recognize that God has a greater plan or purpose, that he is working something. His glory will not be hidden forever, as he alludes to there, that his glory in the cave of Adullam, the glory of Israel will come there. And so then Micah concludes this chapter with the expected response. How should we respond to this call, to this indictment, to the pending judgment? And essentially, it seems like Micah is saying the expected response is repentance. Look at verse 16. It says, Make yourself bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. See, in our day, we might not see baldness as a bad thing. In fact, it's kind of stylish. I've often thought, talked to Danielle about going cue ball. She keeps saying, no, don't do that. So for some of us, being bald can be fashionable, but in their day, it was a sign of shame and repentance. It was a sign that they were doing something. I don't know if you remember the story. In, uh, in David's, uh, some of David's men had gone out to war, and they had, been, uh, and they had gone to make peace with another nation, and that other nation, that king, treated them shamefully and cut off half their beards and ripped off half their garments and sent them back in shame. So rather than coming to the town in disgrace, David said, go, stay over here until your beards grow back, until your shame has been taken away, until your honor is returned. And I think in much the same way, we have this idea that this baldness was a sign of their shame and repentance. But I want you to notice something else. Steve, can you pull that scripture back up one more time? Notice how the lines seem to be in pairs, and I think this will be helpful as we continue to study um, Micah and as you read other prophetic passages. But if you notice, the first line, make yourselves as bald and cut off your hair. And the third line, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, they kind of go together. And then the second line and the fourth line, they kind of go together for the children of your delight, for they shall go from you into exile. You have these parallel passages. And so what happens in Hebrew poetry is they write in couplets. Sometimes they're right close together. Sometimes they're alternating like that. Sometimes the first and the second repeat each other, just in different language. Sometimes the second takes and extends the, the thought of the first, which you kind of have here. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle. It's kind of an extension. And then we see that even more in the second and fourth lines. For the children of your delight, for they shall go from you in exile. And you have this extension. And so as you're reading Hebrew poetry, just keep in mind that there are these pairs. A lot of times it works that they don't rhyme like our poetry. They don't have meter. Roses are red. Violets are blue. They don't do it like that. And so it's important for us to recognize how it's different. Sometimes it, it, it says the same thing again. Sometimes it, gets, it extends it. Sometimes it contrasts it. 
But I think what's important for us to see is, is that Micah is saying, Micah is giving them some clues that this invasion is not going to happen now. In fact, the northern kingdom, if you remember, Micah finished his, I mentioned that Micah's ministry dated from about 750 B.C. to 700. The northern kingdom was taken into exile in 712, no, 722 B.C. So partway through Micah's ministry, the northern kingdom was taken out. He, he spoke most specifically to the southern kingdom. And notice what he's saying here. Make yourself bald for the children of your delight. Your kids are going to be the ones that are going into exile. Exile wasn't going to happen for the southern kingdom for another 200 years, almost. Because saying it's not us, it's our children who are going to suffer for our idolatry. And so parents, I want to just encourage you. Have you ever noticed how much your kids take after you? They take on our habits, our idiosyncrasies, our mannerisms. And the parents of Judah were modeling for their children a messed up means of worship. Yeah, a little worship of God, a little worship of Baal, a little worship of this. Yeah, it'll all be okay. They were modeling idolatry. And so as parents, we need to properly model a biblically consistent and true faith to our children to the next generation. And I think we can do this in a few ways. And I think one of them is continuing to bring them to church. I know kids don't like to get up Sunday morning. It's a day to sleep in. I get it. But you're the parent. Bring them. We need to read and talk about Scripture with them. We need to pray with them more than just mealtime prayers. And I'm talking to me too. So often the major prayer that happens in our house is either when Danielle and I are going to sleep or at mealtime. And I need to be better about that. I think we need to look for ways to serve with them. I was so excited yesterday when, when Dan and um, Mark brought their sons to help the Lloyds move, modeling for their kids what it means to serve others. I think also we need to model repentance by asking for forgiveness from our kids when we mess up because we do mess up. And they need to hear us say, I'm sorry, I'm not perfect. God may not have a physical exile for the next generation, but there may be a spiritual exile. At the beginning of this chapter, I mentioned, at the beginning, I mentioned that this chapter seems to have the following theme. It seems to say idolatry is spiritual adultery, breaking our covenant with God, resulting in judgment, which is God's just and specific response. Our best response is to repent of our idolatry, to cast aside those things that long to take up residence in our hearts with God. God executed judgment for Samaria and Judah in response to their idolatry through exile by forcing them out of the land that he had promised to them. And for us, he executed judgment through the exile of his son, Jesus Christ, who took on our shame and our sin and fulfilled the just penalty for all of our sin and idolatry. And so I just have a couple of challenges. Christian, Stop committing adultery against God with our idols by allowing our idols to coexist with him, 
Lay aside those things and walk in faithfulness with him. And friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you, stop relying on your own strength. Stop relying on the power of the government or other means. Trust in Jesus. Lay down your idols. Trust in him. Because as as I said early on, there will be a day, there will be a judgment day eventually. And at, at that day, You'll either come, we'll all come before God and we'll say, he'll ask us essentially, what have you done with Jesus Christ? And our options are, I have believed, I've trusted in him. And that because of his atoning life, I have eternal life. Or I rejected him. So on one hand, God will say, welcome, come into my presence. On the other, God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Your opportunity for eternity happens in this life now. Lay down your idols. Trust in him. If you don't understand what that means or how to do that, talk to me. Talk to one of the elders after the service. We'd be delighted to open scripture and talk to you about that. But let me, let me close this in prayer.